Hello, my Bobolas. It is so nice to be here with all of you. As always, quick reminder, I do this podcast. I write essays so I can share a perspective and a voice right now, a very hoarse voice that is not found elsewhere in the media. And I love doing it. I need your support. And I know from my listeners that you love this. So remember, I'm just a guy trying to make it in this industry. Uh, please go to leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. It's 10 bucks a month. It's 100 bucks a year. It's worth it. Give a subscription as a holiday gift. I can't think of a better stocking stuffer. Uh, it's been 10 days since I last published something, and I am sorry for the delay. Uh, my wife got COVID at her firm's holiday party on December 2nd. Everyone at the party was double or triple vaxxed. Doesn't matter. Huge number of people at the party contracted COVID, uh, including almost everyone that she was in conversation with. So I am coming to you live from the COVID quarantine house. It's like a trap house, but less fun. Uh, you know, all those tropes that that we heard like how uh you know people who are vaxxed and and at parties they don't need masks because it's a a quote sophisticated crowd that's all bullshit this whole like it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated it's nonsense i mean it's, it doesn't make a fucking difference the, the people at a party and they're drinking and having fun and they they have a virus and they breathe on each other and they get sick and it's like it's not really a surprise. Um, it's not to say the vaccines do nothing, because clearly they're reducing the number of people who die. And that's great. But the idea that you couldn't catch this thing or wouldn't have symptoms or wouldn't spread, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Uh, and I, I query if Moderna analyzed the genome of COVID as it's going around right now, whatever variant is going around, would they make the same vaccine? I doubt it. Like it's, it's a different thing now. I mean, just like with colds, right? You get a cold last year and you get a cold this year. It's a different thing. Colds are coronaviruses. Like you get a different cold. Anyways. Uh, yeah. So she was at this party. She got COVID. She started having symptoms like three days later. Uh, she took a test on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and they were negative. The first three were negative. It was only on Wednesday that it was positive. And so as soon as she tested positive, I took the kids to uh, to the Long Island podcast studio so that we could quarantine here. Um, and that was fine for a few days. The kids did school on Zoom. We watched the first three Mission Impossible movies. Um, by the way, number three, the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace. He, it, that's a great movie. Uh, number two has some cool scenes, but it was like a little nonsensy, too many plot holes. Uh, number one was was obviously great. Um, anyways, I got to be Mr. Mom. We did Peloton runs together. Uh, all three of us set new personal records for 30-minute runs, which was uh, that was fun. Peloton seems like it's... Uh, like in free fall. I mean, the stock's in free fall. The company is in disarray. There was a thing in the post today about some holiday party that they weren't supposed to have, but they had it. And then the CEO was like, yeah, but it was my personal party. And it seems like kind of crazy. Um, anyway, Saturday night, 
I, uh, so what's that? Today's, today's Wednesday. So Saturday night, I started to have symptoms, took a rapid test. It was positive. Started wearing a mask around the house. The kids started wearing masks, but I didn't make any difference. Um, it's been fascinating to observe how the symptoms have evolved. Like on Saturday night, I felt the chills. Uh, didn't have a fever, but felt the chills pretty bad. Sunday, I had this like really extreme tightness in my chest. I had a bad cough. Uh, and I tried to do uh, like a strength class, a Peloton strength class on the the theory that maybe fitness would combat the illness, but I, uh, I couldn't catch my breath. I stopped halfway through. I'm not sure that that theory was so sound. Uh, Monday, it felt like I had a bad head cold. Like, you know, my nose just wouldn't stop running. I was sneezing like a lunatic. I hate sneezing so much. It's disgusting. It makes me sweat. Uh, Monday night, the kids woke up at like 4 a.m. So I guess that's like Tuesday morning. Uh, my daughter was dry heaving. My son came to get me and uh, I, I I had her try to get down some Cheerios and some water so she could take some Motrin, but she she like puked it all up. And um, anyways, they both have COVID. Uh, they both have a fever of close to 103. Uh, they're miserable. Give them Tylenol and, you know, hope for the best, but yeah, they're, they're pretty miserable. They're really lethargic. Uh, yes. Uh, yes or no. Monday, 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 I spent like seven hours trying to get the monoclonal antibody treatment from two different hospitals. I tried from Stony Brook, Southampton and Mount Sinai in New York. And I am, in case it wasn't obvious, I am a pushy Jew. Uh, I speak English natively. I have health insurance. I know how to navigate bureaucracy. And despite all of this, I still struck out at both hospitals. Like the level of bureaucracy and stupidity was overwhelming. And we talk on this show sometimes about how our, 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 like the useless jobs and hospital administrators is definitely one of those. So at Stony Brook, they have a policy that you have to get a COVID test that they administer on site. Now, I'd already been symptomatic for 36 hours, but they didn't care. I had to get a separate COVID test there. It's a half hour drive to get there. Once you get there, I had to wait for 90 minutes in a line to get the test. And then once they complete it, it takes them 24 hours to get the results. So at the earliest, I wouldn't have even been able to get the treatment until the next day. And they won't do it unless my primary care doctor calls a specific number that they won't disclose anywhere else. It's not posted anywhere. He has to request that they fax him a bunch of materials. They won't email it. He has to fill out those forms by hand, fax them back, and only then will someone contact me about scheduling. And can I help bypass any of these hurdles? Can I like give them my COVID test results from elsewhere? Obviously, I have it. Can I have them send the papers to my doctor without like the whole he faxes them a request? Nope, nothing. It, I mean, it was just it, these administrators are are just that they're they're useless and they replicate like gremlins in these places and and they need to make work for themselves and and hassle. You know, one of my friends asked me, why don't they just hire consultants who will help them to become more efficient? And of course, the answer is because efficiency is not the goal, right? The inefficiency is not a bug in the system. It's a feature, right? Who do you think hires consultants at hospitals? It's the administrators who make those decisions. If you're a hospital administrator, 
do you think you're going to hire a consultant with a reputation for saying, yeah, let's fire all the administrators? No, you're going to hire someone who suggests that the solution is just hiring more people. So anyways, despite having asthma, despite having a positive COVID test, despite having symptoms, which is exactly what the monoclonal antibodies are meant to treat. I'm, I'm the target patient, I think. I was still unable to get my hands on this treatment. It was a shocking level of stupidity, of bureaucracy. I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm not surprised, but I'm very disappointed. I can't even imagine how hard it would be to get this treatment if I was not a native English speaker. The uh, verdict came out in the Jussie Smollett trial last week. I, th I think I'm encouraged that it seems the jury got to the right verdict in three out of three high profile cases this past month. Very different cases, very different places. But Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, Maude Arbery, and Jussie Smollett, the jury got to the right verdict. I got, I got some pushback from folks about the Rittenhouse episode. Um, like just generally people who are like, this guy is you know, white trash and hates Jews. That was sort of the the general thing, which I don't know, maybe he, he, he I, I haven't seen that. Maybe he does. Um, it was also the most listened to episode that I've done. Uh, so that's, that's fun. Uh, a lot of people were grateful that I walked through my reasoning, provided a narrative, and it, it was a narrative. It's exactly what I promise you when you come here. It is a narrative that you won't get in the mainstream media and that's different. And it was the same thing with the Epstein uh, uh, episode. You know, I got a lot of positive feedback from people. They're like, this is what I'm here for. Uh, I want to hear a different viewpoint. And explaining what Epstein did and how his whole sham money management business worked. Like that was something you couldn't get elsewhere. Meanwhile, Lady G, her trial is still going. Uh, the prosecution wrapped its case. It seems weird. I mean, I'm, I'm, I continue to be shocked. I shouldn't be, but I'm shocked by two things. The first is the lack of coverage of this trial because it is such an important case. And if ever you wanted an indication that there is an effort to protect the folks who might be incriminated here, I mean, guys, this is it. Here it is. This is like arguably the most important child trafficking case ever. We already know how many important and powerful uh, uh, political and business leaders were implicated in this, right? Anyone who was doing business with him was fucking children. We know it. So how come none of them were called as witnesses? How come none of them testified? How come none of them were mentioned here? Like, did they all plead the fifth? I, I, I just, I don't understand it. How come Les Wexner wasn't a part of this? Where was Bill Clinton? How come he didn't take the stand here? I just, I don't, I don't get how they could screw up this case this way unless it's intentional. Anyways, the, the Jesse Smollett trial was comical. You know, when, when the attack happened, there was like this long list of political leaders who made a point of virtue signaling by tweeting about how outraged they were by the whole thing. But it was so overwrought and fake. And I don't know how anyone could have gotten duped by this. Like it was not even a, a, a close one. This idea that on a night when it's 25 below in Chicago, 
Think about that. It's bitter cold. It's 25 below in Chicago. And that in Chicago, of all places, there's a group of MAGA hat wearing clowns that decided to jump a guy in the middle of town at two in the morning that they yelled, this is MAGA country. And then this is the kicker that they yelled empire. Like somehow these guys were, 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 were hardcore fans of this obscure and retarded show. Come on. And then they recognized this guy in the middle of the night that they had a noose with them and bleach. That was his story that these guys had a noose and bleach and recognized him enough to yell empire. That made no sense. The idea that, 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 that people care enough about this show doesn't even make any sense. Now, we haven't heard any of these esteemed political leaders, everyone from Biden and Kamala Harris, we haven't heard any of them make any kind of a, an apology or retraction about their idiotic comments. Or, or forget about an apology, right? They don't have something to apologize for. Jossie Smollett should apologize. But how about just an acknowledgement that they, that they rushed to judgment and that's a bad idea? That, that the same thing happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, where you had all of, of the great and the good rushing to judgment, and then it turns out that they're completely off the mark. Where's the retraction? Where's the about face? You won't get that, because to do that requires humility. To change your mind, to admit it publicly, that, that requires confidence, self-confidence in your ideas and your mandate, and humility to acknowledge what you do not know. I said this about COVID policy a couple of weeks ago. Like if you insist on things that don't make sense, it becomes hard to, to, to be taken seriously when you say something that people need to listen to. It's hard to be trusted. Mark Andreessen, the, the venture capitalist, and he's a, he's a genius, he, he describes it as strong opinions loosely held. And I think that's a great way to phrase it. You need to be willing to admit when you are wrong, which you are going to be wrong a lot. And you need to be willing to change course. Because otherwise, you're not in pursuit of truth. You are in pursuit of dogma. And dogma is, is strong opinions strongly held. That's how you go too far down the wrong path. Now, the opposite, of course, is, is like a wishy-washy sort of weakness, right? Weak opinions, weakly held that no one wants to back up. As Naval Ravikant put it, and he, he's also a genius, uh, or just a good speaker, I don't know. But he said, quote, no one takes the blame, no one gets credit, no one gets to try the way that they want to, and everybody can then fall back on real communism hasn't been tried. Although in that, in that case, real communism has been tried, it just hasn't worked out well. I grew up on the Upper West Side, in one of those pre-war co-ops, the pre-war co-op buildings that I guess they kind of like define so much of New York City real estate. And the building had all the quirks that those kinds of buildings have that people write stories about. Like it had a board with, with very strict policies about who could buy an apartment there and all these weird rich people in the building, most of whom like they got through the board, but they couldn't afford their apartments. Now, uh, you had doormen who had worked there for decades. They like knew every secret of everyone in the building and a, a basement that was like a labyrinth that, that no one really knew what was down there. 
Uh, and for my mother, this apartment was incredibly important. Like to her, this apartment was a personality. Uh, and, and she served as president of the co-op board for several years. So I just had this like special window into the madness of this building. When I was growing up, we lived in apartment 12E. And six floors above me, I think six floors in 18E is where Daphne Abdella lived. And Daphne is exactly two months older than I am. My birthday is July 18th. Her birthday was May 18th. And we grew up having playdates together as little kids. As I understand it, her birth parents died when she was very young and she was adopted as a, as a baby. Her father was this rich Egyptian businessman named Angelo. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he was very friendly to me. Uh, and her mother was this French model who always seemed like a little whacked out on lewds or something. And they raised her, they raised her kind of funny. I mean, to me, seemed kind of funny. Like she was sort of a, you know, quote, tomboy. But they would dress her up in these super fancy and frilly dresses all the time. And it just seemed like, you know, square peg in a round hole kind of thing. We went to different schools. We didn't stay close as as we were growing up, but we were like friendly acquaintances. We'd see each other in the elevator in the building sometimes. And I guess somewhere along the way, uh, things kind of went wrong for Daphne, as they do to to all of us. But I remember being in eighth grade and seeing her friends trying to carry her through the lobby, like her feet dragging behind her. She was drunk. It was 4 p.m. And I, you know, I remember doing that thing where you you get all uh, judgmental. You see someone and you you sort of feel smug and superior to them. And you have like a kind of curiosity that like you want to stare. And that's one of the worst habits that you can have. And, and it's surely like there's a karma element to it. Like if you do that, it will come back to bite you later on when things don't turn out all rosy for you, right? Like I had, it's a few years later, I was the the one who was, you know, drunk and wasted and being dragged through the lobby by my friends and, and just as much of a mess. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't, don't get on your high horse. Anyways, when I was a freshman at Choate, my father came up to visit me one weekend in May. It was May of 1997. And I remember I was showing him around campus. We stopped in the dining hall to get something to eat. And they had this stack of newspapers in the, uh, in the corner and we walked over to the, and, and he showed me the cover of that day's New York times and on the cover, and I'm going to include this in, uh, in the Substack. on the cover was a big color photograph of Daphne Abdella now age 15 in an orange hoodie looking off to the side. And I was surprised. I mean, imagine that, like you see uh, someone, you know, on the cover of the newspaper, the story of how she got there is pretty wild. So here's how that story was recounted to me over time. And and maybe I've dramatized this a little in my head, but I don't think so. I think it's pretty accurate. So she met this guy named Michael McMorrow. Either she met him in rehab or at AA meetings. Uh, and he was in his mid-40s. He was like this heavy set loner type. And Daphne and her, her boyfriend, she had a boyfriend named Christopher Vasquez. Vasquez. And Daphne and her boyfriend, they were like 15. They wanted to get drunk, but they couldn't buy booze because of their age. 
So Daphne called up this guy, Michael, and said something to the effect of like, if you buy us liquor, we'll drink with you. Seems like a win-win. So I was told Michael showed up with three cases of Zima, which seems very heavy, very inconvenient. Uh, I mean, Zima was a thing at the time, but anyways, who knows what the the brand of of uh, of booze was? But he shows up. The three of them go into Central Park and they start drinking. And somewhere around eleven thirty p.m., they're all quite drunk, and the old guy makes a pass at her. Now, what happens at this point is like a little bit he said, she said, but one of them, either Daphne or her boyfriend, pulls out a switchblade and starts stabbing the fat guy like crazy. And they stabbed him like 40 times. They cut off one of his hands, thinking that the police wouldn't be able to identify him, but they forgot to cut off his other hand. And then they disemboweled him so that he would sink. And they threw his body, his giant fat body, into the pond in Central Park. And then they returned to our apartment building where the doorman sees them. They're covered in blood. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, we're all good. Just had a rollerblading accident. And so they go to the bathroom in the lobby that was there for like the doorman. And, and by the way, that, that bathroom had this beautiful pre-war tile work. It was, it was amazing. They totally fucked it up. They got blood on everything in the process of trying to wash it off. Then they take the elevator up to her apartment, call the police, and they're like, help, help, my friend is drowning in the pond in Central Park. Which, I mean, I, it doesn't make any sense. Anyways, the police arrived. Doesn't take them long to sort out what happened. They arrest both of them. She's on the cover of the newspaper. Uh, it, it spawned all sorts of, of panic pieces in the press about how like kids are wearing North Face jackets and skateboarding and, and they're all maniacs and they, uh, they drink and they kill people. Uh, they wear baggy jeans. Like th- these were all like the, you know, what, what used to be like, you know, kids listen to heavy metal and then they become satanic. It turned into like kids are wearing North Face jackets and baggy jeans and then they become satanic. Uh, arguably the movie Kids was like kind of spawned by that or, or of that same genre. Anyways, um, Daphne and, and her boyfriend, they both get sentenced to 10 years. They both served six years. They got out around 2003. I mean, they were juvenile, so I guess that's what you get. And while they were in prison, I remember I used to see Angelo, Daphne's father, in the elevator. And at first it was like kind of awkward, but then I was just like, let me just be friendly with him. So I'd say, how's Daphne doing? And he'd tell me, you know, oh, she got her GED or oh, not good. She got involved with a gang or something. I, I Like, you know, it's prison. Doesn't seem like an easy place to be. Uh, I think his wife, the French lady, died sometime around then. And then he, if I understand it correctly, he remarried the social worker who was like working on their case. And I remember people in the apartment building would talk about what they would do when Daphne got out, like if the elevator opened on your floor and she was in it, would you go like, Oh shit, I forgot something. And I'll take the next one. Or would you get in or were you like, Oh my God, I can't be in a small enclosed elevator with murder lady. So around 2004, I, uh, I was at home with my mother. I'm, I'm doing some errands. Uh, my then girlfriend was there and I, I go out to get coffee from a Starbucks imitator at the corner called Timothy's. Uh, which was great, by the way. They had great coffee, great hot chocolate. And the elevator opens, and who is in there but Daphne 
Abdullah. And all the scenarios that I had rehearsed in my mind, just boof, out the window. Like we make eye contact, it's a small elevator, we make eye contact and I go, Daphne! And she goes, Lee! And we hugged. And we walked down the block together, we chatted, we exchanged phone numbers, and we're like, let's go meet for coffee sometimes. So I get home and I tell my mother and my girlfriend, I'm like, oh my God, you're never going to believe who I bumped into. I'm so excited. We're going to be friends. We're going to get coffee. Like she, she's sort of lonely. She's excited to reconnect. And my mother's like, who? And I'm like, it's Daphne Abdella. And my mother was like, are you out of your fucking mind? This is who you need to be friends with? Like you don't have enough friends. You need the, the, the murder girl. Uh, Daphne never called. I would have happily met up with her. And I still would, by the way. So Daphne, if you, if you listen to this, if you read this, Please drop me a note. I'm easy to reach. I would love to hear from you. Uh, I am not judgmental anymore. I've had many, many problems in my life. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that it would be great for us to reconnect. Uh, Timothy's, by the way, that coffee place with the, the good hot chocolate, they don't, they don't exist anymore. It's, it's kind of weird. I've always thought about that location as like a, a, a lesson. There's, there's some sort of story to be had there because it's, it's an example of the value of local knowledge and of understanding a city. Like it's an incredible location, 72nd Street and Columbus Avenue, Northeast corner. I think it's what a real estate person would call an A location, an A plus location even. It's right down the block from the Dakota, from the Majestic, from Strawberry Fields, from multiple subway lines, from good restaurants. But over the course of like 30 years, there were maybe 10 different restaurant concepts in the space. There was an Italian and an Indian place and the coffee place and more Italian and more coffee. And none of them succeeded. I always wondered how come, like it's not plausible that all of these businesses were just operated by morons who couldn't turn a profit. I don't buy that. There has to be something cursed about this location that's not obvious to an external observer. And I wonder if each new tenant who came in had any idea how many failed businesses had been in that space, or if they just knew that like the last guy failed, but don't worry, I, I can make it right. The last guy was an idiot, but I can, I can make it work. And I think that local knowledge of having observed something over time and drawing conclusions like that, it's very hard to capture that and transfer it. Like it's a really, it's a really valuable asset to have. And maybe something like Street Easy captures that in data in a way, but I think the story behind every spot is important too. And you just, it's really hard to get that from the leasing data. Right down the street from there uh, on Columbus Avenue between 71st and 72nd Street was uh, a place called Tuesdays West. It was a burger joint that I used to love to go to with my parents. They had those giant table size Pac-Man games and the menus looked like the serial killer notebooks, you know, with like the black and white cover and the burgers came on an English muffin. That's still my favorite type of bread for a burger. I don't really eat bread with burgers. I like to just eat them with a fork and knife, but that's still my favorite type if I'm going to put bread on it. And across the street from my apartment building was the Dakota. That's where John Lennon and Yoko Ono lived. And when John Lennon was shot or after he was shot, John, uh, 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 Yoko spread his ashes in Central Park. And in 1985, they, they renamed that area Strawberry Fields. It was like a tribute to John Lennon 
has this giant circle in the middle of it that says imagine. And I grew up listening to the Beatles, listening to that song, Imagine, going to Strawberry Fields all the time. And like Central Park was really important to me in my childhood. I mean, still is. But I also, this is weird. I used to tell people that I saw John Lennon get shot. I would tell them that he was on his way home from dinner at Tuesday's West, where he probably had a burger on an English muffin, and that I saw him get shot. Of course, that was not true. He was shot before I was even conceived. But I think I, I, maybe I believed this myself. I don't know. If I wander through New York City now, I mean, not right now, because like I'm on quarantine for another, I don't know, six days or something. But uh, just, I try to be mindful of how much the city is idiosyncratic and how much has it become corporatized or gentrified like, is it all banks and Starbucks or are there still mom and pop stores? I think there's value to both. I'm not anti one or the other. Like the, the big corporate entities, they pay their rent on time. They don't make too much noise. They comply with the rules. They're dull. They don't bring life energy to the city. There's no variation. But I think too much in the other direction is also not good. Like, we don't want a city that is all grit. And these family-owned businesses, they may they create an interesting quilt of the city, but they have higher prices, they have less selection. Like my my perception right now is that things are a little less corporate than they were a few years ago. I think some of the bank branches are closing because who the fuck goes to bank branches very much anymore? Those are weird stores. Uh, uh, but it's much more corporate than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I wonder what direction that trend is going to move under Eric Adams. I I don't, I don't really listen to the Beatles anymore. I mean, I grew up doing it, but uh, in 2007, I joined a gym called David Barton gym. I loved working out there. They had this ad campaign and the posters, they were, they were beautiful posters all over the city that said, look better naked. And the ads were so compelling that I joined just from looking at the posters. And I remember when I joined, it felt like I was a part of something unique and special and idiosyncratic. Like I looked at Equinox, I toured it. And Equinox was all these people in Harvard sweatshirts and they were sprinting on the treadmills. And David Barton Jim was weird. There were characters there. There was this cool energy and Elliot Spitzer worked out there and the lights were dim and they were flattering. And Paul McCartney worked out there. I would see him like almost every week, sometimes multiple times a week. And I would play basketball with his stepson a few times. So somewhere along the way, this is, this is weird, but somewhere along the way, I decided that a fun idea would be to get naked and stand as close to Paul McCartney as I could. So like I'd see him in the locker room and I would just get totally naked and I'd put my foot up on a bench nearby him and just stand there really close. It was, that was super bizarre. I don't know what made me think that was a, a good idea. But David Barton Jim is where I, I really started to lift weights seriously for the first time. It's where I started working out with a personal trainer. And I, look, I'm six feet tall. When I was in college, I weighed 135 pounds. I was like a beanpole. But by 2007, I guess I was up to like, when I joined the gym, I was up to 145 pounds, but no form, no definition, really scrawny. 
And that's, that's when I started lifting and, and working out. By 2008, uh, I was up to 154 pounds, a little bit more muscle. Uh, now, I mean, look, David Barton Jim went out of business in 2016, which was very sad. Uh, I joined Equinox then. And look, I grew to enjoy Equinox. But by the time COVID started, I was up to 178 pounds of muscle. And I felt fucking great. Now it's it's different. Like I started running a ton uh, during quarantine. My weight's dropped. I'm like 165 now. A lot less strength, a lot less muscle. I like the way I look in the mirror, but it's it's different. Um, but like despite all all of the running, my go-to workout is still banging weights around in the gym like a meathead. Uh, and I I disobey all of the gym etiquette rules. Like I'm grunting and throwing my weights and banging things and leaving my shit everywhere. Like every, every bench in the gym is my coffee table. We have a, a, a pretty good gym in the basement of my apartment building and uh, just got some, some new equipment there. But I miss working out at a big gym and I miss the weird sense of community that we had at David Barton uh, I just, you know, that was, that was something special. And, uh, in the meantime, look, I'm looking back, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting back to it, to eating spinach and getting jacked like Popeye. You remember Popeye? He was, that was a weird dude. He was dating that skinny prostitute. The whole thing with them was, was strange. So I guess this is a good time to announce that the first a uh, batch of merchandise for the Lee Show is going to be dropping. Uh, we're going to have T-shirts that uh, have our new logo. It's a uh, it's a picture of olive oil, Popeye's uh, Popeye's hooker, and underneath it it says "Sex work is work." And the first twenty five people to buy a shirt will also get an NFT of the uh, of the image that goes with the purchase. You know, Freddie DeBoer wrote an amazing piece about working out this week. I, I highly recommend it. I love his Substack. Uh, and uh, speaking of Substacks, remember, sign up as a paid subscriber if you are not already. Anyways, one of the things that Freddie mentioned is not judging other people in the gym. I remember when I was in grad school, there was a gym next door to my building called Sweat. And they had a sign. I wish I could find a copy of it. It, it. it said something like, no matter whether you're here to get bigger, get smaller, gain weight, lose weight, whatever the reason, you're working towards your own goals. And what matters is that you are here. And I remember that sign resonated with me so much. And I am a big believer in that philosophy. Like, don't judge people in the gym. Just be there and be proud of anyone who shows up. I've been reading lately and, and thinking a bit about the debate around college admissions. Sam Enright had a good piece about this, about whether admissions to elite colleges should be done by lottery. And reading his piece made me think of this feminist philosophy class that I took in college. In case you don't know, I, I studied philosophy in college. Uh, and I remember 
being outraged by the class, by a lot of the reading, by a lot of the content, disagreeing with it. But I, I enjoyed it because it made me think a lot more than many other classes did. The class was a pretty small group. It was like 10 students. Uh, I was the only uh, like based nut job in the class. Everyone else was what we'd call woke today and, and trying to like outwoke each other, as you can imagine. I mean, it's a feminist philosophy class. Um, it was a discussion-based class. And in one of the, the classes, we got into this debate that I think was connected to the Ricci v. Stefano case that was ultimately decided by the Supreme Court and, and into a, a broader discussion of firefighters, firefighters in New Haven. And so here was the question. Let's say you have 10, 10 spots to fill, right? You need to hire 10 new firefighters. What is the right way to choose? You have 100 candidates and 10 spots to fill. Let's, let's use that as our hypothetical. What's the right way to choose who to hire? Do we stack rank people based on some metric? Let's say strength, right? We decide we want our firefighters to be strong. Do we make up some test of strength and then stack rank people based on strength and choose the 10 strongest? Or do we say, here is some minimum threshold level of strength that's required and anyone above that meets that threshold. And then we choose from anyone who's above that, maybe by lottery or some, some other way. And I argued we should choose the best, that we should maximize and choose the 10 strongest, that we should stack rank and choose that. And, and one of the, the points that the professor was trying to make was that, uh, we should be hiring more women and women are qualified to do this. And I said, yes, but if you stack rank, there's a good chance you're not going to get any women. And I'd rather have the strongest than have sex diversity in who we hire here. And her point was, you don't need to have the strongest. You need to have a certain threshold level of strength. And then you may have many women who meet that. And so... I don't know. What's, what's the answer? Like, do, do we want the best, quote, best candidates? Do we want adequate candidates? Which one is a better approach? Um, and, and, you know, look, I, I, I'm a maximizer. Uh, I said it didn't matter if we had the female firefighters. Um, but, you know, m the professor was like this Marxist feminist philosopher. She ar obviously argued the opposite side of that. And I guess you could say the same thing about college admissions. And we're talking about elite colleges, right? We're not talking about like the 99% of colleges that you can just get into. We're talking about like the Harvards, the Yales, the Penns. Should those colleges seek out the quote, best students as judged by, I don't know, the admissions department? Or should there be some minimum threshold that they establish, some metric, and then they choose by lottery. And that's what this article that I, I mentioned earlier was about. I, I, I'm in favor of the, the quote, best students approach, although it's actually for, for different reasons. It's not because I, I think you're always going to perfectly find the best, and that's an issue. And I know that the system has, is classist and racist elements to it, and that there's a lot of flaws in the process. I, I, I really do believe that. But when you focus solely on quantifiable 
metrics, I think you end up with a very boring student body because you end up over-indexing to GPA and maybe SAT, although we'll talk about that in a minute. SAT is very out of favor. And so what about a class that has great violinists and debaters and gymnasts and members of their community? What about those folks? I think that those extracurricular activities have a lot of value and high school students should be encouraged to pursue them. I think that pursuit of activities is good for students. It's good for communities. It builds a strong society. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in this. And so if we reduce everything to metrics, we lose that, that beauty and that heterogeneity. The University of California, they, they just got rid of the SAT from their admissions decisions, which I think is a very stupid choice. Uh, number one, it makes the GPA that much more important. And I don't think GPA is a better metric. If anything, it's more ripe for manipulation. By the way, do you say, do you say riper or more ripe? I don't know. Uh, GPA is from different schools. Most people don't realize this, but they're weighted differently. Like these admissions departments have these black box formulas and they have a ton of leeway in the way that they evaluate these metrics so that they can let in whoever they choose. I guess I, I get this, right? Like the whole point is that uh, a 4.0 GPA from Choate, let's say, is different than a 4.0 GPA from some random public school. And so they, they weight these. And so they have just as much leeway to fuck with you. It's just different. And, and so I don't, I don't think this is the right approach. And by the way, GPAs are just as prone to the same issue that the SAT is prone to. It has racial disparities, right? That's the whole reason that they want to get rid of the SAT because they say that it shows racial stratification because blacks get lower scores than whites and Asians. So if you just go off SAT scores, you end up with fewer blacks in the class. And, and on the one hand, like, first of all, isn't that always what the anti-racist crowd, anti-racist, isn't that what they're always telling us, that blacks have the deck stacked against them? Here's a test that proves it. But by the way, GPA shows the same thing. In the Substack. I'm going to include a graph that shows GPA by race and, and ethnicity over like a 20-year period. There's the same stratification. And it, it, the, the GPA is just prone to the same issues. It has the same racial uh, uh, disparities. And now they're just going to put it into a black box formula where the admissions department has even more leeway. I don't think eliminating the SAT adds more transparency. I don't think it removes racial discrepancy. I think affirmative action is the solution. I think it's very much the solution. I don't think it's being implemented the right way because as it stands now, it's entirely based on race. It is not based on socioeconomic status. And that's a major problem. Right now, if you check black on your application, you get a big boost. And colleges know that all they need is that checkbox. So they will take the, the wealthy son of a corrupt Nigerian oil minister who's paying full tuition. They'll take the children of, of all the rich families in Mexico City, and they get to call that affirmative action. It stinks. The whole system stinks and it's not helping the people who it's meant to help. 
Is our goal to help the, the black descendants of slaves in America a very worthy goal? Then we need to do things differently. If we want to drive economic equality in America, we need to do things differently. And I don't think we're doing it right. You know, we, we talked uh, uh, about two months ago about how a lot of major cities are eliminating their gifted and talented programs, including New York and, and San Francisco. And I think somehow there's this, this confused and fucked up notion that equity, quote, equity means bringing everyone down to the same level rather than elevating more folks. And if we get rid of the SAT, that's not going to help. It's not going to help the people. It's, it's trying to help. This is a, a confused notion. There is a lot that's wrong with universities. Admissions do not strike me as the number one or even like a top five problem. Anyways, I'm going to go uh, focus on recovering from COVID. I think I am mostly on the mend. I'm eating lots of kimchi. That helps. I'm pretty sure. I ordered two bottles of my favorite Korean barbecue sauce from Amazon. This was incredible. So I ordered two bottles. One of the bottles arrived intact. I'm going to put a photo in the Substack, And the second bottle was just loose sauce in bubble wrap. Not like it was shipped in a glass bottle that broke in transit. There was no packaging, no label. It was just loose sauce in bubble wrap. Like who was the person in the warehouse who thought to themselves, yeah, this is a good idea. I'll do this. He, he probably won't mind. I'll give him one full bottle and then a bunch of sauce and bubble wrap. Like, did, did he have some giant dispenser, like at a ballpark, where he just squirted some sauce in and thought it was a good plan? It's, it's too weird. Anyways, thank you for joining me today. Uh, remember, I write, uh, I record the podcast to share a point of view that isn't found elsewhere in the media. I depend on your support. So please sign up as a paid subscriber. Uh, share it with your friends and colleagues. Go to Twitter. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and I will be back with more soon.